Let me, while you turn to Genesis 2, we'll be in verse 15. Let me give you a quick rundown of what our goal is here. Last, two, uh, after Sam, before Sam taught, uh, so two weeks ago, we finished God's creation of man and putting him in the garden. We looked at how Jesus is in the garden and he's involved in creation. We looked at all the places he pops up in there. And um, we finished right where God makes the commandment, don't eat from that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of time, I had to stop well prematurely what I wanted to say all about the tree. So we're just going to tonight look at the tree and the implications it has upon our obedience to God's commands. And then, next week, we're going to start um, either two or three weeks in the creation of Eve. And the purpose is, I thought it's an ideal spot to talk about man, woman. You guys act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, I guess you guys aren't human. Maybe that'll be for another group. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We've got, like, relationships and what is... Your guys' spot with this during this time, and um, I have some experience. I've been through high school and through that whole stage, so that'll be fun. But let's um, let's read our text tonight and pray. Verse 15 of Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Father, there is none like you. I have that song stuck in my head right now, and God, how, how perfectly fitting it is. And how wonderful just to tell you there's none like you. You are God and we are not. You have authority and we are to have submission to you. And so God, I pray tonight that you would graciously grant us hearts that will willfully obey you. So by your grace, give that power to us to submit ourselves under your rule. And God, open our eyes to see the character and love behind every word that you give us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I look at this first command that God ever gave to man, and I see here a pattern for how God structures every single commandment that he from there on gives to mankind. This is a pattern, and there's, there, it's a threefold pattern, and it, it perfectly displays the character of God's commands, and we're going to look tonight at the character of His commands so that we can better understand the heart behind every other command that He gives to us. But before we look at the character of this command, we're going to have to step back just a minute and review a little bit from last week to understand what the character of the command is, we need to look at the situation here in the garden. The command involves, as we read, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean and why is that significant? Well, finding why the tree is there and its significance will lead us to finding the significance of the command. 
So let us now step back a little bit and look at the trees. The two trees of the garden. Man here, as we observed last week, is in a paradise. God made a garden, which this is this enclosed special creation. And he put the man there to work it and to keep it, to have this beneficial labor and to, and to make this garden grow throughout the world. And, and it's um, referred to, in Ezekiel 28, we see that Eden was a mountain. And so there's this garden that is built on top of this mountain, and it says four rivers flow from it. So I could just see this mountain just filled and abounding with lush vegetation, and on all four sides there are just rivers cascading down from this mountain, going all the way out to the outer ends of the world. And God calls this garden and this mountain Eden. And Eden means pleasure or delight. So you have this enclosure in which God made his fullness to be enjoyed through pleasure and delight, and man was able to fully experience it. This is something that we don't quite understand, because Adam and Eve at this point know nothing of the frustrations that we know. We live through our day bombarded with frustration. And all a frustration is, is the inflammation of a disappointed desire. That's what a frustration is. We live this every day. You're thirsty. What's going on? You have this desire to drink. You have this desire to be quenched, but you don't have the desire met. The desire is denied from you. There's deficiency in the desire. It's, it's deferred from you. And so there's this frustration that inflames out of that denied desire. My classic, I, I always recognize I'm frustrated when I'm in my car and there's traffic. My goal, my desire, is to get from point A to point B at at least 70 miles an hour and to get there on time, unhindered, unimpeded, but God always seems, or at least Orange County always seems to produce cars that are designed to slow me down. And that's when frustration flames because my desire is totally denied and I get frustrated. Of course, that's a silly illustration, but we have built within our life every day denied desires and flaming and frustrations. Adam didn't have this. Everything that was necessary to his satisfaction was within reach, primarily because God was right there in that garden. We looked at it as a temple, some of you might recall. God was right there, and Adam had that perfect fellowship of the fullness of the Godhead, and every physical need was supplied. So this perfect paradise is going to be, as we'll see, governed by these two trees. They were God's form of government here early on. So the tree of life, we'll start with this. The tree of life was man's way of demonstrating his dependence upon God. Man needed to eat from this tree to maintain his life. God gave him immortality as long as he religiously and sacramentally came to the tree of life and ate from it, thus demonstrating that he is dependent upon God's provision for his life. Man can't say, oh, I'm God, I can do what I please, and I can live as I want, and I don't need that, I'm independent. Had Adam said that, life would not have been given to him. He had to decide, I'm going to demonstrate dependence upon God who gives me life by coming to this tree. And the tree of life 
is nothing else than a picture of Jesus. Because the Christian has to depend upon Jesus to gain his spiritual life. The tree of life is in the middle of the garden. Jesus is in the middle of the church, Revelation tells us. And as Adam had to come to the tree religiously and exercise dependence upon it by eating from it, we today demonstrate our dependence upon Jesus when we do what we just did a few minutes ago in taking communion. We come to the table and we eat of him, his body and his blood, demonstrating through that obedience, I am dependent upon you for life. And so there's Jesus in that tree of life. So, the demonstration of dependence. Therefore, the other tree of knowledge of good and evil is the antithesis, the opposite, of the tree of life. The tree of life, by eating from it, you exercise dependence. So by going to the tree of knowledge and eating of that, you exercise the opposite, independence. So, had man chosen to go straight to that tree, he's saying, God, I shun your provision and my dependence upon that provision. I am going to do what I want, contrary to your command, and eat from the tree because I say that I can. And I'd hate to blow the story if you don't know, but you should know or you're not going to heaven. I'm kidding on this condition. You know the end of the story that Adam does indeed disobey this command. And he has the consequences. So, knowing this, and seeing this dangerous condition, that this tree, reeking with potential destruction, right in the midst of this paradise, and this happy habitat, and I scratch my head and say, God, why? Did, did you have to put this tree there? Why did you, it's almost as if he dared man by putting it there saying, come on, I just dare you to ruin everything I've made. I dare you. Just, here it is. Just see what you'll do with it. it okay, fine. God, I can concede that you wanted the tree there, but why in the middle? Why right next to the tree of life? Could you not have just cast it to the outer edges of the garden? and covered it under some heavy shrubbery so that man would never be able to find it? Just let it be there, out of sight, out of mind. Why potentially destroy this good thing? What were you thinking? Three reasons I propose that this tree was prominently in the center of the garden. And two weeks ago, you guys will recall, this is review. The first reason is that the presence of this tree of knowledge it was the origination of worship, in a sense. And by that I mean, the presence of the tree instantly demanded a choice from Adam. I'm either going to disobey and eat from it, or I'm going to obey and stay away from it. Without the tree... There is no choice, there is no decision. Man just simply, robotically, lives as God says. There's no option. God says, don't do, well, what does God mean not to do? There's nothing to command not to do. Everything's good. So by creating a not good tree, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, man had options. 
Therefore, in whatever he decided, he either worshipped God through obedience or disdained and rebelled against God through disobedience. Now this choice makes worship a delight. If you're forced to worship God, there's no delight in worship. So the tree here itself not only brought worship, but it brought delight through man's decision to obey. And so here's this tree displaying openly, look, I'm going to see, man, you have the choice to worship me. I want real, genuine love and devotion and dependence demonstrated towards me. So that's why the tree was there. And could you imagine if God just made all of us just robotically worship Him today? Why would we even exist? Why are we going through this world thing anyways? It doesn't make any sense. And so, the choice was established. Number two, and this one is a little surprising on the surface, but the tree was there simply to accomplish God's will. Yes, He willed that that dangerous tree would be there, even foreknowing that man would choose to eat from that tree and thus completely destroy the paradise. He knew. He had to know because He's God. It wasn't as if Adam ate of the tree. Well, Eve and Adam. Oh, blaming you. I like blaming you. It's not as if they ate of the tree and then God immediately summoned Gabriel and Michael and all the other angels and said, Guys, we have a problem. Get out the blueprint for plan B. Something went terribly wrong. I did not, I can't believe, I did not think Adam would do this. Oh gosh, we need a plan. We need a plan. I mean, I hope you're laughing at that because that is... Ridiculous to think of God in that sense. Far from that, God knew. There's no way he didn't know. And and to back up my theory, I want to read to you Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, which says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. If he didn't know that man would sin, how could God choose us? He chose us because we're a sinful, fallen race. And he said, I know this is going to happen. I'm going to put the tree there, knowing Adam's going to sin. And so he chose us before the foundation of the world. Second verse is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, without blemish or spot. And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. It, it was God's plan that Jesus would come to die before Genesis 1-1. It was his plan. And yet, yet, he took the dust and fashioned man with it. Can you imagine as he ran the veins coursing through Adam's body knowing, my son is going to have these very veins. Except they're going to be shred. And the blood is going to burst like a geyser, like a volcano, like a, erupt like a fountain. And as he laid out man's back, I know my son's back is going to be reduced to hamburger meat. As he formed the head, this head, my son's going to have a head like this. And they're going to rip the beard out of it, exposing the skin, or the, exposing the bone. And they're going to press the crown of thorns into his brain and watch the blood just drip down like snow melting off a mountain. And they're going to take these hands as he formed Adam's hands and choosing five fingers instead of three like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> they're going to take my son's hand and put a, a spike through it. And all of this, God knew. And yet, he followed through on his plan. 
If that is not a demonstration of amazing love, I don't know what else can be. God loved us knowing full well that He created the world as a stage for His Son's death. Creation was made for redemption. That is how much you matter to God. That is how much He loves us. So, third reason for the tree. First, worship. Second, is God's will. And third, I think this is most important to the command. This is now where we're getting to the character of the command. Put on your thinking hat just for a minute. This tree had to exist in order to maintain the existence of paradise. Alright, what I'm saying is if you take the tree of knowledge out of the picture, there is no paradise. And I come to this conclusion because if there is no choice to obey and be dependent upon God, there's no tree of knowledge, and Adam is free to do as he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to basically rule his own life with a no symbol to remind him of his allegiance to his creator, man essentially becomes a god. Ruling as he pleases, how he pleases, when he pleases. And if man rules as a god, answering not to his creator, but becoming the ultimate end of the creation, you cannot by definition have a paradise because to call an imperfect being ruling over a paradise and maintaining a paradise is a contradiction to the nature of man. But Brandon was not Adam perfect. He was perfect in the fact that he was sinless, but he was not perfect in his being. Had he been perfect in his being, who would he have been? He would have been God. The difference is that God is a perfect being <laughs> in that he is self uh, excuse me, self-sufficient. God needs no outside source. He in himself is completely perfect and meaning he's complete. He needs nothing. But man was created with needs. Hence the tree life says you need to depend upon me for life. So, a habitat can only be as perfect as the one ruling over the habitat. And if an imperfect being like man who has dependencies is that a word? has dependencies. If he rules the habitat, it will only be as perfect as the man is. The man's not perfect. So had man become the ruler of this paradise, it wouldn't be paradise. It has to be under God's authority through the decision of either tree. So the tree of knowledge brought God's rule over the realm and put man in subjection to God, thus making the paradise in the hands of a perfect sovereign being making paradise what it is, a paradise, because the paradise was an extension of the divine being himself. And if you take his ruleship out of that, you take God out of paradise, you can't have paradise, because paradise, by definition, is what God is. That, that's what made it paradise. And so you take the tree and the choice out, man is free to do what he wants, and paradise would instantly be demoted to what man is, a corrupt place. Lacking fullness, lacking fulfillment. Because all man could have to satisfy himself is himself. He needs something else. He needs a God. That's what makes it paradise. Fulfilling the frustrations which Adam had. And this could only happen if he has God's command over him. And that tree demonstrated God's command. The presence of it. So, 
I hope you guys follow. That you take this tree out of the picture, you take God's rule out of the picture, and then without God's rule you can't possibly have a paradise. Well, that's the reason for the tree. Dependence, exercise through the tree of life. Independence, in eating from the tree of knowledge. God, in this context, saying these trees are governing my paradise, says, now here's my command. My commands are going to uphold this governance so that your paradise may be maintained. Why is it important that we look at this? Because if you want paradise and happiness and that, that, that completion in your heart today, you have to understand what that God's command is simply trying to uphold that paradise in your life. And, and to rebel from His command is to rebel from His paradise. So God makes this command saying simply three basic components. Number one, starts with a positive provision. He provides positively. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. There it is. I've provided everything for your use and your pleasure. Even as Paul said, nothing is in unclean in and of itself. And God says, hey, here it is. It's all for your pleasure. I'm, you can have anything in this paradise as long as it simply doesn't lead you to independence. As long as you stay dependent upon me, everything will be used for your pleasure, your delight, your benefit. So here it is. God's commands are founded upon this principle, which is so contrary to our thinking and to what we're often preached at, saying, well, God tells us not to do this, so stop doing that, and you need to fix your life here. And it's all these negative connotations of His commands, when in reality, God's command started with the positive provision of saying, here is joy, and, and have it, partake in it. It's all for you. And then, he gives one negative prohibition in verse 17 by saying, but, just this one thing, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of that tree. That's it. Everything's yours, but don't eat of this tree. Because if you do, it's going to get bad. If you do, you're going to become an independent being that's moving away from my paradise. Just don't do it. I, I, and, and you might hear Adam. I, I definitely could. Growing up under my parents' household, I can relate to hearing, don't do that. You knew all this, but don't do that. And I'm like, okay, that's great, but why? Why not that? I want to do that. Why do you tell me not to do that? And, you know, you guys have asked the question, right? Why? Why can't I be like, and why don't you let me do that? And the infamous answer generally comes, the one we hate, because I said so. <laughs> and I hated that answer. I thought, that is not a reason. I don't like, who are you? <laughs> and I can almost hear Adam saying, Looking at the tree, there it is. Like the sun's even afraid to shine on it, and it's all eerie and, and like drawing him. But but why? And God almost just cutting him off, saying, "Because." And this is the third part of his command: the protection. Because 
If you eat of it, you will die. <laughs> Good reason. But, but step back from it and really think. God didn't have to tell Adam that. He's God. He does as he pleased. He could have, if he saw fit, just said, because I said so. And man can't, he has to stop his mouth. Who is man to argue with God's command? Yet God didn't just say, because I said so. He said, because I'm protecting you. Because if you do, you're going to die. God's not on a power trip like sometimes I think parents sometimes may be thinking, I need to be the parent, so I just got to come up with a rule. Because I said so. Don't ask. But God said, I don't need that power trip. I'm God. I'm pretty confident in who I am. Adam, here's the real reason. I don't want you to die. I love you. These are, this is how God's command works. Any command he gives. He wants to provide for your happiness. He wants, well, then he gives you the prohibition, the warning, draws one line in the sand, and then he says, it, all this is to protect your happiness. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be removed and cast out of paradise. That's why I tell you this. Die? What is he exactly protecting us from? You shall. Don't read my notes. You shall die. In order to understand the severity of God's protection, how loving this is, we need to stop and ask, like good Bible thinkers do, what does God mean by die? Because when Adam ate of the fruit and disobeyed, did he plop and drop down dead on the spot? No. He, I mean, like, just, he's gone. He didn't. But God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So, we must conclude, God had more in mind than just Adam is going to stop existing if he disobeys. God totally had more in mind because he didn't die in the day. Therefore, there must be some sort of death that happened in that day. <laughs> so what does he mean by die? Let me clarify. It is not annihilation. That is how we think of death. We see a squirrel run over on the street, and it doesn't exist anymore. It's been annihilated. We don't even think about it. It's gone. Squirrel is going to the dust. It's not even in our thoughts anymore. That's not, and of course, that's how we see because Grandpa dies and he's gone. What do we do? Like the Doritos commercial, maybe you can sprinkle on his. Sorry, let's pause my hat. He's he's gone. But this is not how the Bible speaks of death. It's not annihilation. It's separation. All right, annihilation is just flutters in the hyperspace. But separation is different. You have a being, and then it splits apart. It's illustrated often, um, you take a branch, and you see a branch disconnected from the trunk, and it, what does it do? It withers. It's still there, but it has been separated from its source of life. So God has three, as the Bible describes, has three deaths in mind, okay? Three separations. The first is physical death. And physical death is your human spirit and your human body are like this when you're living. You're alive because the spirit is in the body. But when you die physically, 
your spirit separates from your body and the body just has no life in it anymore. It, that gets annihilated. But the spirit lives on. That's physical death. That did happen here, eventually. We know because God promised in chapter 3, verse 19, that you will return to the dust. And, secondly, go through the graveyard in chapter 5. It's pretty evident that death came into the world. It's basically just a big graveyard of who died when. So, yes, physical death happened. Second, spiritual death. <laughs> this is the separation of your spirit from God's presence. Man should be, and this is what paradise is, God's, man's spirit, perfectly content in God's presence, but spiritual death separates that so that you don't know God's presence. You're out here alone, and this is death, spiritual death. The Bible speaks of it in these terms, in Ephesians chapter chapter um, 2. Oh, of course I would do that. Well, Ephesians 2 talks about you being dead in your transgressions and your sins. Unable to respond to God. Unable to have life in Him. You've been separated from it through sin. Third, oh, and of course, this happens to Adam. How do we know? Because God cast him out of his presence, out of the paradise. Third death is eternal death. And this is the ultimate result of one who physically dies while still spiritually dead. The result is eternal death or eternal separation from the presence of God. That is what hell is. It is the eternal separation from the presence of God. On the contrary, Christian, we know in Romans 8 that it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is our future in heaven, while the unbeliever will be eternally separated. Are we sure about this? Probably pretty sure that eternal death is eternal death. You go to Revelation. The Bible calls this in Revelation the second death. You die physically, then you die eternally. <laughs> separated from God. It, it talks about death and Hades being dumped into the lake of fire and um, the beast and the devil being cast into that lake of fire and it says there they will be day after day forever and ever. Day and night, forever and ever. That, that sounds pretty eternal. Um, one I think the best proof of this is that in Romans 6.23 it says, you guys should probably quote this by heart. Uh, for the wages of sin is death. What kind of death? Answer to the next line. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why would he give us eternal life if we didn't have eternal death at stake? Wouldn't it make sense? Of course there's eternal death. That's why he gives us eternal life. And yes, this would have happened to Adam too. These are. This is what God means by death. Crucial separation, not just physically, but spiritually, and that spiritually could end up being eternally. This is serious. And therefore God says, this is my command, O oh man. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to be separated from me forever, for your own misery. I want you to stay in my paradise. Now, of course, we've been born in spiritual death. And we're completely hopeless had Jesus not come and died on the tree of Calvary 
and there branched our separation back to the presence and paradise of God. And on that tree, He enabled us to come to Him and partake of the tree of life. The tree of life that we've been banished from. Jesus came and died on the tree so that we can come back to the tree of life and have eternal life with God. That's why there's a tree of life in Revelation, the last chapter. There's a tree of life in Genesis 2, the second chapter of the Bible. Two trees of life in the middle of the Bible is all about man being banished from them and trying to get back to the tree of life. And Jesus became the answer on the cross in the middle of the Bible and he spread out his hands and said, Here, here's the bridge. You can get back to the tree of life. And that's what we have. Now, for immediate application, we still can experience death by disobeying God's command, by separating us from His paradise that He's established for you in Jesus Christ. He wants you to walk with Him and experience the contentment and fulfillment and pleasure and delight of His paradise walking with Him. But when we sin, when we hear God's command, whatever it is in the Bible, and we say... I'm going to be independent from that exception, that rule. It's my exception. I'm, I'm dependent upon you, God, for everything, but this I'm independent in. When you say that, you go to the tree of knowledge, you take a bite, and you die. Not, not as a Christian, you have life. So what dies is your paradise. Your, your satisfaction in God withers because you separate yourself from it. See, holiness is our separation to God, and sin is our separation from God. And so this is why it's important for us to look at this so that we learn how to live in the paradise of God's presence every single day and not rob ourselves of that passion and of that joy. He wants us to be content in Him. He wants us to have the pleasures and the delights of our hearts. Psalm 37, 4, 5, 6, somewhere in there, says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. This is what He wants of us. And he pleads, these are my commands, and, and they're given, I'm giving this command to protect the provision I've given to you. I've given you pleasure in my presence, and I want to protect you from being separated from that. Therefore, please obey, Christian, please. Demonstrate your dependence upon me through your obedience to me. That's what's at stake. So, moving towards our conclusion... I want to show three reasons that obedience is necessary to preserve the paradise Jesus has put in our hearts. How to fully enjoy life walking in communion with God. Obedience is the key. We must be dependent, demonstrated through our obedience, else we become independent and cast out of His paradise. So, the three um, reasons that obedience is so vital to preserving our paradise. First, our obedience protects paradise through dependence. Our obedience protects paradise through our dependence. When did Adam lose paradise? When, when he took a bite, he demonstrated insolent independence from God. I don't need the tree. I don't need to depend on you. I can do my own decisions. This is what I want to do. Hence the serpent said, you will be like God. And so he took the bite and became an independent creature. Self-sufficient. I'm going to do my thing. And paradise was lost. So, paradise is protected through our obedience. 
which dem- or, or obedience protects the paradise because it's dependence on him. You must be dependent. The minute pride comes in, cast out. You can't enjoy God's presence. You must be obedient, not independent. You must be dependent. Um, as Hebrews or First Peter five five says, that God opposes the proud. He resists the proud. Keeps them as far away as possible. Number two, our obedience promotes pleasure. If obedience protects our paradise, then our obedience also promotes pleasure. Because paradise, by definition, is pleasure. Eden meant delight, pleasure. And so as we, through depending on God, experience the paradise He has for us, as we continue to demonstrate that dependence through obedience, we are promoting pleasure in our heart. And, and it becomes this thing where you delight in God more and more and more because you're closer and closer and you're, you're staying right there with Him. You're separating yourself from the things of the Lord and you're coming closer to God and your pleasure in God, your satisfaction is continually being filled. So it promotes your pleasure. Obedience. To protect your paradise, to promote your pleasure. And finally, number three, obedience prevents being cast out of his paradise. It prevents our independence. It, it prevents our separation. Of course, logically, okay? If obedience to God demonstrates dependence, then disobedience from God demonstrates independence. If obedience promotes pleasure, then disobedience demotes pleasure. If obedience protects paradise, then disobedience ruins paradise. That's why we need obedience to His commands. It isn't that He's on a power trip. It's that He is protecting us. The phrase has been said, Sin is not bad because it's forbidden, but it's forbidden because it's bad. In other words, sin isn't a terrible thing just because God said it's terrible. It isn't just because he's on a power trip. Sin has been forbidden from us because God says it's bad for you and I'm protecting you from it. And this is what he wants us to know. Obey me. Be dependent on me. Don't exercise your independence by doing whatever you want. That's ruining the paradise you can have in me. Obey me. I can hear one objection and I'll answer this and then we'll go. But... If I obey God, I'm going to miss out on that. Well, then you weren't listening. (laughs) Because God's first command was, you can have everything, just don't have that because it's going to ruin the everything that you could have. Jesus, in telling his disciples something that probably shocked them in Luke, he said to them, look, if anyone leaves his house just abandons his house, abandons his wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom. If you are willing to obey God and follow God, thus forsaking and refraining from something that was so appealing to you, if you're willing to give that up, Jesus says, sucks for you. I know, you're living a life that you're missing out on so much. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says quite the contrary. He says, give up that pleasure and guess what you gain? you will receive many times more 
many times more. Matthew, Jesus says, a hundredfold. Not just in the age to come, but in this time as well. So, your little objection is just a little naive. What you think is, oh, God's command just says, refrain from this. Man, that's so painful. No, God's command says, refrain from that and gain so much more in the paradise of obedience to God. So, let us pray. Father, as we open, it is even more so now, the prayer of our heart, for your grace to instill in us obedient hearts. Not grudging obedience, but willful obedience. The Lord, grant, uh, we pray that paradise would be experienced all day, every day, through our obedience. So teach us to depend on you and to flee from anything that makes us independent in and of ourselves and thus removing ourselves from you. So Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.